This is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied, unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways, peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud or demanding in nature. Let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove, wishing in gladness and in safety, may all beings be at ease. Whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born, may all beings be at ease. Let none deceive another or despise any being in any state. Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another, even as a mother protects with her life a child, her only child. So with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings, radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will, whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding. By not holding to fixed views of your hearted one, having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense desires, is not born again into this world. So, tonight, I had a thought for an interesting one. Because outside of the Buddhist world, the group that I talked with the most are medical practitioners, doctors, nurses, technicians, counsellors, therapists, all kinds. And we're reaching a, a very, very interesting point in medical understanding. Arguably, it's a very old understanding, but it's becoming more conventional now, which is fantastic. And that's an understanding of health, and particularly what pain is. And this may sound at the beginning like going off topic and what's this got to do with Buddhism and everything else, but actually it comes very, very close. And there's a fascinating pattern here which we don't find talked about very often at all. In fact, I've, I can't think I've ever heard anybody really talk about it. But it's, it's in the text, it's, it's everywhere when you start looking for it. And one of the big things about physical health, particularly how the body interacts with things, so we might be taking a walk and all of a sudden, ow, there's a pain in my arm, what, what's that? And we're instantly drawn to have a look at it. And it might be a cut or a scratch. It might be a, a thorn or a splinter or something else we picked up. Or it might be some little animal or insect that's taking a bite out of us and wants a piece of us for lunch. And instantly we're drawn to that to see what the problem is. So pain is a very, very interesting response to a problem. 
And what's useful about the medical understanding today, or at least the medical perspective, is that pain doesn't arise by itself. It doesn't happen, you know, just randomly. It has causes. And this is where it starts to get more interesting. Because when we find out what the problem is, we look and say, oh, there's a, there's a, a thorn there, or there's a, there's a little bee or something, I've got a bee sting or something. Then instantly, we will act on it. And we know the appropriate thing to do is to clean up the, the cut or the scratch or to remove the splinter or to you know, remove the sting or to shoo the little insect away if it's an ant or something and, and then apply an ointment or a medicine to help it heal and recover and then it's all good. Everything's fine. We don't have to do anything after that. Now, there's a few interesting things to consider about this to begin with. Firstly, it's not that long ago that, you know, we kind of thought that most, or at least particularly in the West, that, and still in many parts of the world today, in particularly tribal areas, where they believe that pain exists because of black magic or witchcraft or curses or spirits or demons or all kinds of things, uh, and because we just didn't know about all the problems that happen. But the thing is, now that we understand that, we get a different relationship with the situation. Now we know there's there's a cause and effect going on. Now, another interesting thing about this is that this is a, a strategy, an approach that the mind and the body uses. So the body uses pain to get our attention because we generally won't listen to it. And then, knowing that it hurts, we're instantly drawn to the situation and we'll act on it in a, in a positive way. However, if, hypothetically, I was to just ignore it, and just take some painkillers and forget about it and not act on it, then it will get worse. It could get infected, it could get more damage if, there's, if there really isn't sort of a little insect or animal that's chewing away at it, which uh, is a, you know, horrible for the <laughs> terrifying thought for, for us for a good reason, because it can do a lot of damage. And yet if we just do that and just ignore it and try and medicate it away, eventually, if we're lucky, someone will start shouting at us for being so silly and, you know, tell us what, you know, to fix a problem. And so we will. Now, here's where it gets interesting. We have pain arising because of a cause. The cause can be an infection, an imbalance, it could be damage, it can be all kinds of things. But those two things are very closely connected. They don't happen without each other. Now we move into the mind. A problem arises in the mind. It manifests as pain mental pain, depression, fatigue, anxiety, frustration, restlessness, thinking non-stop over and over and over, exhaustion, fatigue, frustration, anger, jealousy, all these painful emotions. And this is a thing. Those emotions arise because there's something wrong in the mind. Now, this is Buddhism 101, when we really stop and look at it. This, these parallels are virtually the same system. And to a degree, it might sound obvious today. But of course, for a large part of the world, we didn't, we didn't believe this. We didn't even think about this. And even today, many people don't think about this. And this is where a real problem is. Because how many of us are trying to medicate away our mental pain? How many of us are even med uh, meditating to get rid of our mental pain? 
It's pretty common. And so what's fascinating about the situation and so wonderful about the situation is that if you look at the problem, which is what mindfulness is, it resolves itself. And that's incredibly liberating. We don't have to worry about what these thoughts are, what these feelings are, what this mental pain is. Why is this happening to me? We don't have to ask these questions. There's pain in the mind. So we look at the mind. Inflammation in a bodily sense, we understand a lot now. Inflammation in the mind is the same thing. The thoughts and the feelings just keep on going and growing and growing and getting worse and worse and worse. As the Buddha said, you know, in the, the fire sermon, everything is burning, everything is inflamed. The Buddha also said that one who is enlightened has pulled out the thorn, which is a very interesting similarity as well. He's using exactly these same metaphors. And that's where the freedom comes in. By understanding that the thorn, the pain is there. And particularly when we talk about chronic pain, physical pain, it consumes your whole life. It can drive you crazy. Especially because I've experienced chronic pain several times in my life. Many people have as well. You can't think of anything else. It just consumes your whole life. Mental pain does the same thing. It can drive you crazy. It can consume your whole life. You can become completely obsessed with this. And because we're not looking at the problem, or we're trying to medicate it to go away, it just gets worse and worse and worse and continues and continues. It's like the situation that if we have, you know, something that's a, a thorn or splinter in our skin and it's becoming infected and we're just taking painkillers and ignoring it, we know it will get worse. And, you know, if we have a our mum or our aunties or our sisters, they're usually the ones that slap us around the head and say, what are you thinking? <laughs> Look at this, get this fixed. So uh, uh, we don't have this in, in a mental context. We don't address this issue. We have mental pain and yet we're not resolving it. And so many people in the world, the opioid epidemic a couple of years ago, it's arguably still going. Many people are trying to medicate away the pain. And if they don't address the problem, it can get so bad that they, they will want to kill themselves. Which is, you know, a heavy uh, conversation to be having here. But at the same time, to realize cause and effect. That these mental pain, these mental feelings that we have that cause us so much trouble in our daily life, the stress, the anxiety, everything else, is just a problem within the mind. There's pain in the mind. And we can address that. We can resolve that. And that is such a wonderful thing. And it's such an empowering thing for us. Especially when we consider, because in Buddhism, we really don't talk about it from this perspective. A lot of people, unfortunately, we kind of, it's sort of sold to us that, oh, just practice this meditation technique or method or just do this or do that just do this religious practice, all this kind of stuff, and it will magically somehow fix itself. And for some people, it kind of does. And the reason is, for a lot of these modalities, whether it's, you know, Tai Chi or Qigong or yoga or all these kinds of things, sometimes it's like a deficiency that we have, and the body and the mind sort of says, oh, yes, I really need this, this is great, and then all of a sudden, okay, I've got what I need, I don't need to do this anymore. 
but we try to keep on doing it because it doesn't actually resolve the underlying problem. All we're really doing is we're focusing on the symptoms, not the problem. And the Four Noble Truths famously is set up in a medical formula. What is the disease? What is the cause? What is the solution? What is the formula? And so we can kind of see all through the Buddhist texts, the Magandhya Sutta, which is a very famous one, is this uh, wanderer called Magandhya, who, inter who talks to the Buddha. And, you know, at the beginning, he's quite antagonistic to the Buddha, but eventually they kind of talk quite openly. And they have a discussion on what health is. And health, from a Buddhist point of view, is the release of the mental problems, the underlying cause that arises all the, the, the dukkha, is what the term is, and that is a very, very interesting thing. Because the, the simile the Buddha uses in that one is it's a bit, it's a little bit graphic, it's, it's, but it's a very interesting one. It, it's a simile of a leper, and it's a bit hard to relate to that now, but it's this simile of a leper who is basically scratching his scabs and burning his, his skin because it feels relief. We can say today, it's like if you've got a mosquito bite or something, you're going to scratch and scratch and scratch and scratch and scratch. Yet, if you didn't have the bite there, would you actually scratch it? Well, no one would. You know, there'd be no need to do it. There'd be no enticement to do it. It's because we feel a need to do it. And this is a very, very big unfolding here because when we start to look at all the things that we do because of physical pain and mental pain, all this constant attempt to try and resolve the symptoms, we end up doing some pretty damaging things, both to ourselves, to other people. We can turn into monsters. And, you know, we just have to look in the world, you know. We don't have to look very far in, in newspapers or the history books to see this pattern occurring again and again and again. What this mental pain drives people to do. And yet, when we look at the cause of the problem, when we pull the thorn out, as the Buddha says, it resolves itself. The pain disappears. And that's incredibly liberating because it takes a lot of the, you know, we kind of feel that enlightenment is something we have to do, it's something we have to achieve or attain or etc. 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 And we have to work hard. To a degree, that's true. But at the same time, when we kind of see that, oh, if we resolve the underlying cause of the problem, the symptoms disappear. We become happier and peaceful in our lives. We don't need to run around trying to fix the problem because the problem has dissolved. And that is one of the things that makes Dharma practice, meditation and everything else, so fulfilling. Because we see this all the time when we sit and meditate. There's some imbalance in the mind, something happening in the mind. And guess what? We start thinking. We lose the peace and happiness. We lose the meditation. We're constantly drawn here, drawn there, you know, because there's a you know, pain in our butt or our shoulders are getting stiff or something else. Because the mind and the body are constantly interacting. And because of that, we're constantly trying to resolve one or the other. And yet we're not looking at it from a complete picture. It's basically that, oh, there's a mental pain or I've just had a, a thought that popped up that is really disturbing. What do I do about it? You know, don't, don't worry about that. 
the content of the thought doesn't matter. It's just a manifestation of mental pain. That's all. And that's a wonderful thing because we take our thoughts and feelings so seriously and we don't recognize them for what they are. And yet, when they resolve themselves, because we've looked at the mind, and that's what the four frames of mindfulness are. We look at the body and we look at physical experiences. We look at the mind and mental experiences, mental phenomena. It's always been there. It's always been there. And that's a really remarkable thing that we just don't find in Buddhism, at least how it's taught these days. You know, it's, it's more taught about, you know, get this, do this, and, you know, it kind of magically sorts itself out somehow. I, I have really no idea how that's going to work. But, you know, that's, it's kind of, you know, packaged, you could say. It's kind of like a, a product, like Buddhism has become a product. And that's really kind of the issue is that because we're not dealing with this deep mental pain, and it's different in different cultures, I have to say. And that's kind of one of the interesting things is that at Bodhinyana in particular, well, in, in Australia generally, because we're so multicultural, we're dealing with so many different cultures all the time. But at Bodhinyana as well, from a Dharma perspective, we're having to deal with people from all across the world and their backgrounds. And so it's useful to understand a little bit of their cultural background to kind of navigate where they're coming from. But at the same time, the pattern happens over and over and over. It doesn't matter where in the world you are. Mental pain manifests because of a cause. There's pain in the mind. There's a problem in the mind. And we're not looking at it. And so it gets worse and worse. It becomes chronic and it can drive us crazy. And yet, just looking at the mind, how do you feel? What do you need? Look at the mind. What's the cause of the problem? Ask it. And you'll find that it becomes clear. Initially, it might take a little while. And you know, the more you meditate, the clearer it becomes. And the more familiar you are with navigating, interacting with the mind. And of course, that's one of the big advantages of, as we talked about as in the introduction, bringing the heart and the mind together. Because when they're not talking to each other, the heart and head, you could say, or the intellect and emotional world, bringing those two together is far more effective at resolving this problem because they're disagreeing with each other. If they're antagonistic with each other, you're never going to even get close to resolving the problem because you're just too busy with all these other problems. And this is a thing. It's so, how to say, it's so hard to see but at the same time, when you observe how it works in a physical sense, there's a pain in the pain somewhere. You look at what the cause is. You deal with it. You apply a medication or something to help it heal. And then you don't need to apply medications after that. Once it's healed, it's dealt with. And yet in the mental world, psychology, it's a completely different story. We're constantly trying to analyze things, to resolve stuff in the past, which sometimes is very useful for sure. But it becomes bigger and bigger and bigger how all these coping mechanisms work just as a means to manage the symptoms. Just as a way we have 
a huge array of medications to manage symptoms in a health context. And a lot of the time, those medications don't actually fix the underlying cause. They just manage the symptoms a little bit. And doing that causes side effects. And this is another interesting thing. These side effects in trying to manage mental pain cause other problems. And it kind of, it's this huge interactive bounce between the other and everything else. And the more you look at it, the bigger it gets and so on and so on and so on. But the point basically is, is that the solution was always in your hand. The solution was always with you. Just we didn't know it. And that's what avijja is. So this is, again, Buddhism 101, dependent origination. The cause, the kind of fundamental cause that underlies dependent origination is this term avijja, which literally means not knowing. And it's generally termed sort of not knowing the Four Noble Truths, but it's actually a broad context in terms of the Four Foundations of Mindfulness. We're just not knowing what's going on in, in all this. We're not knowing how our mental pain, our physical pain that we're ignoring because it's, it is admittedly hard to look at. It is admittedly hard to, to face. We don't want to see pain. We don't want to experience it. We want it to go away. We want to be happy. We want, so again, if you look at the, second, the Four Noble Truths here, which is where it gets even more interesting, you've got these, these three things, Bhavatanha, Vibhava Tanha and Karma Sukha Tanha, basically running off to, we're trying to make it be like this or not be like this. And if we can't have that, we will run away into sense pleasures, Karma Sukha. And this is where it gets interesting. We're basically using this as a way to bypass dealing with the problem. And yet when we look at the mind and resolve the problem, it disappears all on its own. And that's so freeing and so available to anyone. Just the thing is, unfortunately, we don't talk about it very often. You know, we don't really, do we? You know, we talk about, we argue about what these terms mean. We argue about how to analyze stuff, about, you know, the definition of, you know, this sort of, or this text or whatever. And we go on forever and ever and ever. And in a way, we're doing that so we don't have to look at the problem. And that's another interesting thing. As I said before, a lot of us are trying to meditate to medicate, which is an interesting way of looking at it, the symptoms. So we're trying to meditate as a way to make the pain go away, to make all the frustration go away. We're not using meditation in a way to relax and calm and settle so that we can see clearly. That's what samatha and vipassana is. Samatha is to calm and clear the mind. Vipassana is so we can see clearly. In fact, the, the word literally, vipassana is from the root pasati, which is to see. And the, the vi bit at the front means fully. So to, it really means to see fully clearly, basically, to see everything. And see fully what's going on in our body and mind. And this is where it becomes important to develop that relationship with ourselves. The relationship with our heart and our head. The relationship with ourselves and each other. How do we feel about being in this body, in this mind? 
A lot of us were, were basically so engrossed in running away from all of this because we don't know how to deal with it. And it's scary. It's painful sometimes, you know. And the thing is, this meditation path, the path of Buddhism is about developing skills, but developing strength, developing, you know, the kindness and the compassion for yourself, understanding that, you know, pain arises. Mental pain arises. And it has a cause. And we can deal with that. We don't have to run away from it. And the more and more we do this, the more able we are to navigate all these little problems in life. And yeah, there's a lot of problems in daily life. There's a lot of problems in monastic life. There's a lot of problems in every life. <laughs> doesn't matter where you choose to, what modality you want to live. There's always problems. <laughs> but how we, how we relate to those. We understand all of a sudden, okay, yeah, there's problems. We can act on this, no problem. It's not a problem. All these things happen. And we start to see, hang on a minute, why are we reacting in this way? Ah, because we're afraid that this is going to make it worse. Right? We're afraid when we, when we have physical pain, like we sprained our ankle or we, you know, bumped something, we're afraid of moving it or damaging it because we don't want to make it worse. So we've got this inherent sort of resistance, this knowledge sort of going, you know, let it rest, keep it still, look after it, don't make it worse because it could get a lot worse. And we have the same approach in the mind. We're very nervous about interacting with certain things because we don't want to make our mental pain worse. And yet we don't understand that we're still not looking at the cause of the problem. And yet when we do start to look at the cause of the problem, it resolves itself. So I've been going on for about half an hour now. Shall we dive into some meditation? Sounds very appropriate, Venerable. Marvellous. Okay, everybody, please stand up and give yourself a bit of a stretch and adjust your clothes if you need to. It's always good to loosen up and settle in. <laughs> I've already had you sitting half an hour, so, you know, it's, you're perfectly allowed to give yourself a bit of a wiggle. <laughs> okay, and when we're set... We'll settle in and please close your eyes. And just start by being aware of the physical sensations and about how we can make it a little more comfortable, a little more relaxed, a little more at ease. For the first minute or so, as you relax, your joints will change shape. So, you know, feel free to adjust your posture in your chair.
and spend the first minute or so seeing how are you reacting to being present with your body and your mind. There might be some resistance, some awkwardness, and that's okay. It's okay to see how we react to something that we don't spend a lot of time with. Feel what it's like being in your chair, in the room, in this space. And start to pay attention to your breathing. And allow the breathing to become deeper, calmer, longer, more gentle, but on its own terms. Your breathing relaxes as you relax. And use your breathing to be soothing, calming. Being able to breathe freely is such a wonderful thing. Mind and body really only feel at ease when it can breathe naturally to do what it needs to do.
breath starts to become very calm and soothing. Imagine breathing in light. And let that light flow completely through you. Fully relaxing. Fully energizing. Fully rejuvenating. And fully healing. Let the light fill each part of your body, or all of your body, if you can. Whichever works for you. Imagine the light flowing into your heart. Beautiful light into your beautiful heart.
and let the light gradually become brighter in your mind, filling every part of your body, every part of your mind. And let the light be kindness. Let this healing light flow wherever it needs to go. But the goal is to not try to control it, not try to use it. It will be drawn to exactly where it needs to be. As you breathe in the light and it flows through you, use the light of your mind, the light of your heart, to, to increase it, to give to it, to help it to grow brighter.
And now let that light, that kindness, expand beyond you. Let it fill the entire room. There is a joy in giving and sharing. Share it further. Share this light to fill the whole house, your whole apartment. And include everyone that's in that house. As you pour your heart into this, this light, wish to those people that you live with and yourself to be happy and healthy and free from pain and suffering. The happiness of joy and contentment the joy of understanding And let that light expand further. Send it to those you love who are far away. Share what joy and peace you have in your life with them. That they too may be happy and healthy.
And if you can, share this light, this joy, with as many people as you can. Your mind often knows someone who may need this. They may occur to you. Now start to bring the light back, back into your home, back into the room, back into yourself. And as you breathe in, think the word returning. And as you breathe out, say the word home, returning home, home within yourself. As the light fills you, as you return home, let it fill you again with calming, soothing, healing, 
but how does it feel? Does it feel like you're coming home? Or do you feel lost, lonely, in unfamiliar territory? If you do, you're very lucky, you're very fortunate, because this is where you have so much adventure before you. This is where the work begins to build that relationship with yourself. To pull out the thorn in your heart. Please open your eyes. And welcome back. <laughs> oh. Have we lost Chris? <laughs> What's lost is often found. <laughs> Brussels sprouts, sustaining and nurturing and comforting. Thank you for the beautiful meditation. Thank you for having me. <laughs> All right, any questions? <laughs> oh, yes, questions. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. <laughs> Um, I would like to ask a question as usual. Yeah. The first as one. You wonderful, Gloria. Thank you. Um, so I like I have a lot to lot to ask, but it's just like um, I recently realized that like I grow up taking care of, like every one of my family, like every one of them are on my shoulders. And I parents, every one of them, like, I worried about my father, who is alcoholic, and whether he can take care of himself or not. And I, wor I worry about my mom, because he's emotionally mature, and I have to take care of her as well. And then I worry about my brother, because he's, like, emotionally immature because of her uh, early childhood experience. And recently, I have this feeling, I suddenly, I don't, I don't know whether it has anything to do with meditation of law or not, but like, I recently feel this kind of like, I cannot do this anymore. Mm -hmm. Like, it's just too much for me. And then I, I realized that I spent my whole life like putting other people, like all of them about me. There's no me inside this. And then I, I think it's like 90, 
five to ninety eight percent of my life is all about them, mm-hmm. and then I just omit my needs and omit everything about myself, my feeling, and my emotions, and all of that. And then really, it's like I just I feel like I cannot do this anymore, and then my body is telling me that I cannot do this anymore as well. And I I'm so exhausted, and I feel like the tiredness is. Is in my bone. It's inside my bone, mm-hmm. and then I I feel like I really need to learn to how to put myself on the party and be quote unquote like selfish, like ah, yeah. be selfish a little bit more. But like a lot of the time, I feel that pressure. Like I need to I need to take care of them, and this is like the kind of natural tendency of me. Like whenever I saw that they are in this and my mind is gone, like. I, I need to take care of them, and I really want to ask is like how how to reprogram myself to like put myself onto the priority list other than like like putting all of them on my list. Yeah. Yes, thank you. Yeah, uh, it's a great question. The thing is that a lot of the time we put other people first because we recognize deep inside what pain is. We recognize their pain, and it seems to take over our life. And the thing is that it's not so much as being selfish, but by being compassionate. Slightly different thing. Being compassionate means that we have to look after ourselves. That we can't look after others if we don't look after ourselves. And at the same time, the big difficulty is, and this is one of the really hard lessons of life, because, and particularly as a monk, I've. Experienced this many times is we want to help people in their lives. We want to help people in their meditation, and a lot of the time, helping is not helping. We're undermining their ability to learn and to grow on their own. And this is the thing. Sometimes we have to realize that by doing the right thing can sometimes be the wrong thing. And so, by reflecting on this and sort of when you sort of said that. Your body is telling you you can't do this anymore. That's a really important signal, because this is also the problem when people have heart attacks. Their system is saying, "I can't do this anymore," and we have a heart attack and or a stroke or something else. This is a very natural cause and effect process. And so, what's very beneficial about this is to give yourself some space and going, "Okay, I've got to look after myself because." Otherwise, the whole thing's just going to fall into a great big heap, and then what's going to happen? You know, it's a lose-lose situation by looking after other people too much at the expense of ourselves, because then we don't grow, we don't progress, and our own health fails, and our own symptoms of that situation take over our life, and then it all feels like we've achieved nothing, like it's been a complete waste. We've been running around trying to help people, and they're still in the same situation. You know, people are still trying to medicate their problems with alcohol. People are still not growing and staying, therefore, immature, and so on. Because sometimes it's how they feel safe being emotionally immature, and sometimes it's a way to avoid having to face these difficult things of life. But if we don't face these difficult things of life, when will we ever grow as human beings? When will we ever get a deeper understanding of what it is to be alive, what it is to be human, and to be humane? And so, in this particular case, 
it's very, very useful always to come back to how do you feel in this present moment? Because if you feel tense, if you're getting no signals, I need a break, I can't do this anymore, then do step back and tell people, look, sorry, I can't do this. I have rights too. You know, I need to look after myself as much as I do other people. Because ultimately, and this is, can be a case, I'm not sure if it's the case for everyone, but it's, it's very common that we look after other people as a way to escape our own problems inside. So we look after other people so we don't have to look at our own problems, our own pain. And that grows and grows and grows. And then we can't bet, because it grows and grows and gets worse, we can't bear to look at it. So we're constantly looking for something else. So that kindness, that coming back to ourselves, this body and mind, and taking time for ourselves is a perfectly valid, perfectly correct, it's something you should be doing. So hopefully, uh, be creative. You know, maybe it may need taking a weekend away, where, or if you live with them, it's just closing off the door for a weekend or saying, saying sorry, do not disturb, I'm not here. <laughs> give yourself that time. And to give yourself also a recognition that your, intent, your intention, your heart was in a good place. And therefore, to share that intention with yourself so that you can be more confident, more happy in your own life. So, hope that helps. Yes, thank you. I recognize that that's, a, that's kind of like an, an, an addiction. Yes, I will, I will yeah. try my best. Thank you. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Chris, you are muted. You need to unmute yourself. Yes. Thank you, Gloria. Thank you. <laughs> Ah, uh, Venerable, would you be okay if I read a question from the chat for you? Yes, please. Go for it. Okay, certainly. Uh, I guess I would like to ask Venerable if there are words from Buddha about mental suffering in human lives. Why does one have to endure this? And what did Buddha advise regarding this matter? Well, that's actually... A very, that gets to the heart of Buddhism, in an essence. That's exactly what the Buddha is focusing on, in particular the Four Noble Truths. Because the, the thing about the Four Noble Truths, which I think a lot of people get wrong these days, is they have a very sort of one-sided approach. They don't want to call it pain or suffering or anything else. They want to call it dissatisfaction. And dissatisfaction is certainly part of that picture, but the picture is much, much bigger. It's physical and mental. And when we look at the First Noble Truth, it's a whole picture. It includes everything, all states of being, in all modalities, in any form, shape, etc., etc., etc. To get to really how to deal with that is contained within the Second Noble Truth. It is because we're constantly running away. We want to be this, we don't want it to be like that, or we don't want to be that. And if we can't have that, we'll run off into these distractions. The Buddha actually said that the thorn is greed, hatred, and delusion, this wanting. He also said that what we're burning with in the fire sermon is greed, hatred, and delusion, this wanting. And so we have to put this fire out. 
Now the thing is, is we have to look at why we want stuff. And that's where it gets really interesting. Because we want stuff because we have symptoms of pain and discomfort. And we have these symptoms of pain and discomfort because there's an imbalance, a problem, some harm happening to the body or the mind that we're not dealing with. And when we come back to those, our priorities have completely shifted away from external stuff towards internal stuff and resolving that and they resolve themselves when we bring attention to them and we can see, oh, okay, I had this belief, I had this idea, I had this expectation, this demand, all these things and it was stirring up the pot. This is a really, really odd one because our view, and that's why first of the Eightfold Path is right view. Our view undermines everything. It basically, yes, it changes all the time, but when we, I look at it a bit like a soup pot. You know, if you put just a little bit of spice or something, some flavoring in there, it infuses the whole pot. You know, you put a little bit, bit of garlic in and all of a sudden it infuses the whole pot. And sometimes it's really difficult to get that out. And that's the situation we're in at the moment, is we're basically like a soup pot. <laughs> we're basically like a pot of soup with all these ingredients in it. And that has shaped our life, our mind as, as we see it. Because from our view, that shapes our intentions, our motivations. How we see the world informs what we expect, what we plan to do. And that shapes how we speak, how we act, and all these other things, this huge cascade effect all comes back down to how we see the world. Uh, uh, an old school friend of mine came a couple of years ago to the monastery and he told me about another one of our mutual friends from high school. And he was, as I remember, he was a very fun person, very engaging, very open, um, very tolerant. And he entered a relationship with someone who was engaged in very extremist views, very um, an antagonistic, very right-wing, um, very hostile views. And he absorbed those and he ended up killing himself. Views shape our life. And this is one of the f big problems is that our views inform our mind and they harm our mind. And that harm causes the pain these symptoms, depression, frustration, anxiety, the hatred, etc., 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 And where instead of looking at the problem, we've just let these things become chronic and they've taken over our lives. And then we, we act. We speak in certain ways that reflect that. You know, we do so much harm in the world and harm to ourselves. And so it always comes back to, as, as the Buddha says, it, it's all in there. It's coming back to the four frames, the four foundations of mindfulness, coming back to the present moment, being mindful and so on, and developing these skills to be able to face what we have and to be able to help it heal. So this is a very, very big thing. It's basically the Four Noble Truths in a nutshell. Um, so that's definitely the place to start if you want a, a bigger sense. Uh, Really, we could be talking about this all night. <laughs> so uh, anywhere in the Buddhist texts is, is a reflection of 
of the Four Noble Truths. So you've, you've basically gone straight to the big question there. Hope that helps. If it hasn't, please, uh, um, please let me know and we can, we can clarify this a bit. Uh, yes, you can clarify it, Venerable. We have a question in the chat asking specifically, what are the Four Noble Truths? Oh, okay. <laughs> well, there we go. Uh, the first Noble Truth is that basically the fact of Dukkha. Now, Dukkha is this term which, as I said before, is often people sort of either say it's suffering or it's dissatisfaction. It's a very broad spectrum term. So if we go to the shops and the thing we want to buy isn't on the shelf, that's Dukkha. If we have serious disease and we're in great amount of pain, that's also Dukkha. If we get in a horrible fight or in a relationship problem, that's also Dukkha. So all these things is a broad spectrum term of what Dukkha is. Pain, dissatisfaction, unhappiness, etc., etc., etc. It's a huge mental, physical combination. And specifically, it's birth, aging, illness, death, not getting what we want, getting what we don't want, separation from that which we love, and this thing called the five candors. And the five candors is everything. It's the Buddhist sort of, the Buddha's way of encapsulating the entire universe, past, present, and future. So the first of these candors is called Rupa Kanda, which means material stuff. All the solids, liquids, gases, energy in the universe. The second one, experience, feeling, how we experience this, this physical stuff and our mental stuff. The next one is our perception, our analysis, our thought, our inter interpretation of our experiences of this physical stuff. Then we have what's called sankharas, which is basically the will, how we interact, what we plan to do, our agenda, our desires, our expectation, our planning. Our, it's often called volitional formations, which is basically a, another broad spectrum term. But it's basically, okay, so we, like we, I feel something, ow, there's pain in my arm. I experience that. Sanya comes in, which is the perception, oh, it's a cut. Sankara comes in, okay, I need to act on this. And then the last of the kanda is consciousness. It's really the sixth sense consciousness. So really sight, sound, hearing, smelling, taste, touching, physical, all is consciousness. And this is basically the entire human being, the entire universe. And the Buddha says, this is a problem. It is dukkha. It's a foundational problem. This soup pot has come to be because of how we are. So this, all these uh, problems we have in the world are a reflection of the first noble truth. Second noble truth, this is caused by tanha. Now tanha is another problem word. It is another broad spectrum word that is correlated to dukkha. And this is very, very interesting. This is, this is one way which we really confuse things, particularly in English language, because we often say that um, tanha is craving, but it's wanting in any shape and form. It's those three wantings that I said before, wanting to be, vibhavatanha, uh, sorry, bhavatanha, wanting things not to be, vibhavatanha, or the kama sukha tanha, which is wanting 
pleasures, distractions, fun, all that kind of stuff. Wanting those things specifically is what tanha is. So the thing is, is if we say, oh, first noble truth is dissatisfaction, and then we say second noble truth is craving. Well, not really, because craving is an intense feeling. Dissatisfaction is a mild feeling. They don't correlate. Whereas in the full noble truths, they do correlate. So you have mild dukkha because there is mild tanha, or you have severe dukkha because you have severe tanha. So those things are very closely connected. The third one, the solution, or the remedy, you could say, is that by reducing or basically resolving, abandoning tanha is the solution. And the fourth of the Four Noble Truths is the Eightfold Path, the formula, how you do it, which is right view, your right intention, your right motivation. So that's the second one. Third one is right speech. Fourth one, right action, right mindfulness, right effort. I've actually got those two the wrong way around. It's right effort, then right mindfulness, then right samadhi, which basically means your meditation, your stillness. And then that's, that's how it is. Just make sure I've got them all. <laughs> Right, right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right mindfulness, right effort, right samadhi. And all that works together. And they bounce off each other. So your view is going to inform not only how you, you intend, how you speak, how you act, but it's also going to inform your effort. Because if you've got an agenda here, which is informed by your view, your effort's going to be a bit out. <laughs> your intention's going to be a bit out. It's all going to be out, you know, it's not going to flow together. And so by correcting your view, which comes from seeing things as they really are, which is that samatha vipassana, we calm and clear the mind through samadhi, stillness, meditation, to see fully clearly. And that corrects our view, because all of a sudden we see, oh my goodness, what have we been doing? This is crazy. <laughs> and all of a sudden, this big shock to the system. What on earth have we been thinking? And it's because of our view. And that's basically the four noble truths in a nutshell. But of course, it's a, we could be, again, talking all night about this. It can, but it's very useful to understand that what dukkha is, basically... This is also where it gets a bit interesting because the Buddha, some people say that um, the first noble truth is that everything is suffering. And what's interesting is, on one hand, the Buddha says, yes, it is, because he says the five candas are dukkha. At the same time, he never says it directly. And the reason why is because the Buddha doesn't argue with subjective experience. So you might find chocolate cake particularly pleasurable. He doesn't have, doesn't have a problem with that. The issue is, what makes it dukkha is that it's impermanent. It will change on you. Entropy rules. So, you know, second law of thermodynamics has the last word, basically. And that impermanence, that change, that uncertainty underlies everything. We're constantly afraid of that. And that's what drives us to do all this crazy stuff. And, there's, and that's the big, big problem. Combined with that is that there's... Dukkha being piled up on dukkha, you know, dissatisfaction on pain and all the symptoms of mental and physical discomfort piling up on top of each other and interacting and causing one system out of balance and causing other problems 
until eventually we say, I can't do this anymore, which is often where we get heart attacks and strokes and these other problems, or we end up going to kill ourselves. The final problem is that anatta, there's no agent behind this. We can't. See, one of the things which I find a bit odd is when people say, oh, I did this and I was in the driver's seat. I start to get a bit interested when people say that. It's because, you know, what do you mean you're in the driver's seat? And if you've heard Ajahn Brahm's simile of the driverless bus, this is what we're talking about. This is just a bunch of processes. We're not more than the sum of our physical and mental parts, the five candas. And all these things together, because they're constantly changing, because they're out of our control, they are dukkha. And it's formed, it's continued on, because we want it to be like this, we don't want it to be like that, or we want some distractions, we want to exist, we want it happy ever after. And by get, releasing that, by recognizing that you're never going to win, entropy has the final word. It will always be this way. We change our priorities, we change our view, we change our intention. And this whole thing heals itself and resolves itself. And that's really what's so fantastic about this thing. Because sometimes it sounds so morbid or so complicated or anything else, but actually it's a huge step forward to say, this is just how it is. And it's, it's solvable, it's resolvable, and it can resolve itself because we correct our view and we no longer try to make it be what we can never achieve. We wake up and realize there is no pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. But again, this is a big conversation, so maybe there's other questions. So hope that helps anyway. A most beautiful conversation, Venerable. Thank you for that. Um, I have another question here for you. Are there any meditations that would uh, reduce chronic physical pain? Um, there are, but I find having had chronic pain myself for a long time is that generally speaking, there's no one size fixed all formula for that kind of thing. Generally, a lot of the chronic pain is caused because um, we, we just can't deal with it. it. It obsesses our mind so much that we can't go beyond it. And to be able to, so a lot of the meditation that's most effective is that relaxation, just allowing it to be, it's okay. That sense of metta and compassion that it's perfectly all right for it to be there, which of course needs a lot of strength, a lot of inner strength. And you develop that inner strength by what you do in the world, how you interact, by doing good, by doing um, meaningful things to make your life meaningful that gives you a lot of strength and of course avoiding all harmful stuff also gives you strength as in the ability to say no gives you a lot of strength and once you feel more confident in yourself now you can start to be with that pain and soften it and soothe it and say it's okay to be there because a lot of pain is aggravated or even caused by this fear 
by this resistance, by this, I don't want it, make it go away, by this um, aggravation against it. And by calming that, many cases will settle by themselves, many won't. And for those ones that won't, you spend more time with it. What do you need? How can I help? Let's look at this deeper. Let's do this together. And spending time with that physical pain, all of a sudden, we realize that it's not the enemy. It's just a manifestation, an expression of something that's gone wrong in this body and mind. And then once we start to ask that question, then we start to move forward. And we start to consider ways that we can heal. Because maybe it's a diet thing, maybe it's a lifestyle thing, maybe we need to go to a doctor and have an MRI scan. It can be all kinds of things. We start to take responsibility for our life. Because the vast majority of pain is made worse not only by stress, which is caused by pain, that's how these things build up on each other, but because we want them to go away, we don't want to have them. It's like we're, we're shutting the door on them. Meanwhile, this pain is a signal saying, please look at me, there's something wrong. And this pain has become chronic because we've refused to do that sometimes. We've been unable to do that. And it's been allowed to grow and fester and get worse and worse and worse. And then we've just piled all this resistance and stress against it. So how we interact with it, of course, is very, very important. So metta is useful, compassion, joy, doing meaningful stuff. All these different little avenues that the Buddha get left. And of course, they're really in all religions, but the Buddha pointed them out sort of saying, this is how this fits together, how you can use this in a beneficial way. And then the pain does start to resolve when we start to resolve the cause of the problem. So I hope that helps, but it's a very long journey for that one. And you do need, if the, particularly if the pain is on the edge of driving you crazy, you really need to be able to relax and let it settle for a little bit and get some breathing space. That's very important. So I hope that helps. Uh, Venerable, we have another question here. How would I keep constant mindfulness? How can I calm the wandering mind and come back to the present moment? Do you have any strategies that I can use? Mm -hmm. The first one is the question itself is interesting because I would say look at why you want to be in the present moment. Because sometimes... You know, I mentioned right at the beginning, sometimes we want to learn how to meditate so we can medicate. <laughs> we basically want to learn how to be mindful in the present moment as a subtle form of controlling the situation. And that's actually the sort of the wrong direction. Generally, the foundation for being mindful is based entirely on priority. If you, the more you meditate and the more you experience this is a good thing, this helps. I do feel better being mindful. We start to set good habit patterns and then it becomes easier. It's a lot like learning to drive a car. At the beginning, you know, you're looking left, right, and how, how do I do this? And, you know, terrified of being smashed up on the highway and everything else. All of a sudden, 
you've been doing it for months and months and months. Oh yeah, you just you know you can drive and you know put your radio on and or your headset and you, you're not even paying attention and you're driving perfectly safe. <laughs> in in you know you can do it on autopilot. In other words, so the priority is very very important, but also how frequently you do it. So by trying to be mindful can sometimes actually be a backward step. Naturally being mindful is because your intention is there. You want to be in the present moment. You want to see what's going on. How can I improve my life? How can I live a better life? How can I live more healthy? How can I relax more? How can I address these internal experiences? Once that becomes your question, all of a sudden it becomes very easy because it's what you want to do. When we feel that this is something that I have to do, then it becomes a problem. It's like dieting. When we get ourselves to that point where we realize that we have to diet because it's, it's gone too far, then this is something we want to do and it happens very easily. But when we're sort of being told that you have to do it, all of a sudden there's a little bit of us that's resistant. You know, it's, it's sort of... There's, it, it's not an easy process, but our priority has to be there. And that comes from the experience in our meditation. Ah, this does feel better. Ah, this does work. Oh, I do feel better meditating. Oh, things do make a lot more sense. Oh, this does improve my life. Things do become clearer. You get this validation through experience. And all of a sudden, this is something you want to do. And then it, it becomes effortless. And then it becomes so wonderful doing it, you, you don't see any reason why not to do it. And then it happens all the time. So I hope that helps. And Venerable, one last question. Mm -hmm. uh, Venerable Sampa, how do we find out what our thorn or many thorns are? Maybe you have just answered this, but I didn't get it. Thank you. Okay. Uh, the Buddha himself says that the thorn is the wanting, the greed, hatred, and delusion. And this thorn that's in us is very, very deep, and it hurts a lot. And the reason it's so very, very deep is because of our relationship with the world and the relationship with ourselves, the relationship between our heart and our head. All these different things. Our relationships are really, really important to start with because the thorn is there because we're, we can't deal. We don't know how to deal with the world. We don't know how to live. We don't know what this body and mind is. And yet we experience stuff, which is the second kanda. We can't avoid it. We're automatically analyzing and perceiving and interpreting it. What do I, and then straight away, what do I do with this? How do I act? And we're constantly running around without even knowing what's going on. And that's driving the thorn in deeper because there's this fear, there's this, what do I do, this panic, and, a, you know, and this fear of making it worse drives it deeper because there's this constant wanting and because of the pain it drives us to do all kinds of things, it drives us crazy. And that's a problem. So to pull the thorn out is to let go of the greed, hatred, and delusion, to let go of the tanha, so we're now going into the third noble truth, and to do that is the fourth noble truth. To pull it out means that we don't need it anymore. We don't have to be afraid of what the universe is. 
because we built up such a good relationship with ourselves. We filled our life with meaningful things. We don't have to be afraid of all this stuff because we can't avoid it. What's bene what benefit is it? It has to be this, this point where we see it's irrational to be living the way we are and ignoring what's happening inside of us when it's basically shaping how we interact with the world. It just isn't rational. So we need that intelligence to come in and say, what are we doing? This is a lose-lose scenario. And then we start to change. And so it's, it's a tricky one. We have to start to pull that thorn out, basically by soothing the pain that we experience here and now, and then let it go deeper and deeper and deeper. And the more and more we can look into it, the more we can see why we wanted things, why we were driven to do this, why we live the way we do. These are very, very old habits. And what's behind those habits? What's the vested interest in those habits? And once we see that, we can let it go. And the thorn just falls out by itself because we don't want it anymore. And that's, and that's how it solves itself. So I uh, hope that helps. Thank you, Venerable. Venerable, would you be okay to leave us with a blessing this evening? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> so. Nati me saranang nanyang buddho me saranang warang ete na sacha waje na sotite holtu sabada Nati me saranang nanyang damo me saranang warang ete na sacha waje na sotite holtu sabada Nati me saranang nanyang sango me saranang warang Eighteen, a such a one, Jane, a salty take hold to Sabada.